topic I've taken for this year's study is biblical reconciliation, a topic I hope we'll agree is worth our consideration. I want us to consider and think for a moment of the numerous cities where we can recall strife and division. One group in each city might be reasonably considered privileged by their birthright, their history, and their culture, and they are insistent that everyone become like themselves. The other segment of the population has its own history and set of values that inform them. However, it's imperative that the two groups live in harmony in their shared community. And I'm certain that there are particular cities that come to mind. Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Antioch, Rome, Jerusalem, Thessalonica, Philippi, just about everywhere that, where the early church was. There was division between the Jewish Christians and the Greek or Gentile Christians. Paul acknowledges this tension in Ephesians 2, 11-13, when he writes, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In our modern vernacular, before becoming Christians, some would say that these Gentiles were disenfranchised. And even becoming, upon becoming Christians, they had to deal with the Jewish Christians, some, not all, who were trying to make Jewishness a requisite for Christianity. Jesus did indeed tell the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 and 22 that salvation is of the Jews. It's easy to mistake the statement to mean that being Jewish, however, is the key to salvation, but that's not the intent. This was the mistake that those early Jewish Christians who insisted that they made, who insisted on circumcision and adherence to certain festivals and times. However, salvation isn't Jewishness. But salvation has come to the Jewish people and was realized in Judah where Jesus hung on the cross for the sins of man. Stephen's impassioned defense of his faith found in Acts 7, 2-53 is a repudiation of the failure of God's people, Jewish people, to recognize this, the very Messiah that they were expecting. It was an indictment of generations of failure and the outright rejection of God and His prophets by those who received the promises but spurned them. In the midst of this amazingly concise history of God's relationship with His Jewish people, He asserts, Stephen that is, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of the angels, but have not kept it. That's 51 and 53 of Acts 7. Stephen's address, or addressed them as uncircumcised in heart and ears. For his Jewish audience, he might have well have said that you are no better than the Gentiles. Something certainly not received well from what we know of Stephen's fate that day. While he delivers a blistering rebuke, his sermon is also a recognition of the fact that God's plan of salvation, which the Jews had rejected in, in most part, had its heritage through the Jewish people. And yet, in Galatians 3 and 28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And similarly, similarly in Colossians 3.11, he asserts, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor, nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. How then... In Christ are people who are so different with so varied backgrounds reconciled. Paul's answer, Paul answers this in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, and we're going to be going through that text a bit today. But Paul writes in total in this section, for he himself, Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, or thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to those who were near, for through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So Paul begins in verse 14 by, by uh, regarding Jesus, for He Himself is our peace. Much as John the baptizer, when he saw Jesus coming down to the river Jordan, as recorded in John 1.29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul distinguishes Jesus from being a mere peacemaker and recognizing that Jesus is peace himself. He is in fact the article of our redemption, having himself died on the cross for our sins. And for the same reason, he is our peace, having paid the price to bring us together in salvation. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 2 and 2, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word from the Greek here translated as propitiation, which happens to also be translated as atonement in the Septuagint, indicates that Jesus Himself was the payment for our sins. He is our peace. He was the payment. Jesus was on the cross 
that peace offering to satisfy the debt incurred by the sins of man. He did this not merely either for Jew or Greek, but for the sins of the whole world, both Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile. And we could use Greek and Gentile in the context of our message interchangeably. For this reason, Paul says, who has made both one. While wildly diverse, with conflict that existed in Christ one. Indicating that there is no longer a separation or division, but all are indeed one in Christ. A little later, just moving along in the text, in Ephesians 2.15, Paul writes, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Continuing that concept. What is discovered here is that the enmity between Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile, was an artificial barrier. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. It wasn't by their by any genetic trait, it wasn't by anything else. It was necessary for God's ultimate plan of salvation to have the descendants of Abraham distinguish themselves from being, uh, uh, distinguish themselves from the rest of the believing world. It was necessary that the children of Abraham keep themselves holy, untainted by the unfaithful practices of pagan religions. It was God's plan through the lineage of Abraham, that the world, the whole world, would be saved. God promises Abraham, in you, all of the families shall be blessed. Genesis 12 and verse 3. All the families of the earth. Not all of the Jewish families. Not all of the families from that particular reason, region from which Abraham came but all the families. All the way back in Genesis, we learn that God's plan was to bring the whole world together in Christ. As many of us would come to Him in obedience. Paul informs us at the end of Ephesians 2.15 that Christ created in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Well, Paul talked about that a little bit differently also in 1 Corinthians 12, where we see the different parts of the church make up one body. Every one of us with different talents. Every one of us with different difficulties or challenges or weaknesses. We also see in Romans 12 as well that we are all one together, though not all exactly the same. It's more broadly understood that even Jew and Greek who were distinctly separate throughout history, are now that one new man, which is the body of Christ. The phrase, and has broken down the middle wall of separation in the latter part of Ephesians 2.14, has generated a great deal of interest for Christians who are looking into the historical backdrop of first century Christianity. What is this middle wall of separation? Well, there are two specific answers to that question. Uh, an, uh, a literal wall in the second temple and an idea which Paul is asserting and neither mutually exclusive but with a distinction. First, 
there was a barrier about five feet in height. When you look at the, the, any layout of the temple, you see this wall that encircles the inner side, you know, the inside of the, of the temple, and there's only, I forget how many, maybe a half a dozen small entrances that you can go through if you are allowed through. And like I said, it's about five feet tall, and it is that boundary to mark where Gentiles and unpurified Jews could not pass into the area where only purified Jews could or were allowed. This boundary did, did indeed exist. There's another boundary that we're probably more familiar with, and that's the veil between the Holy and the Holy of Holies, which was torn in two from the top when Jesus died. It didn't, it didn't just fall apart. God broke that barrier in two, signifying direct access to Yahweh God was no longer reserved for the human high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. This veil, however, should not be confused with the middle wall of separation to which Paul is alluding. In fact, it's important to know that the middle wall of separation in the temple was not destroyed like the veil until the temple itself was destroyed some eight years after the book of Ephesians was written during the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army led by Titus in AD 70. So, while Paul is alluding to this middle wall of separation, what is, that, what is, he, what is he actually addressing? Well, he's not saying that the, that the wall has been torn down, because it has not. He is summing up in a vivid picture that every Jewish Christian and many Jewish uh, uh, Greek Christians could understand as they read his letter. Though the physical wall may yet stand in Jerusalem at the initial reading of, of Ephesians, it was no longer a real boundary between Jew and Greek before God in the church. In fact, it was only symbolic of the real boundary, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, which had now been nailed to the cross. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 2, 11 through 14. Very similar to what he writes in Ephesians 2, 1, 1 through 11, uh, 1 through 13. It says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith through faith work in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him having forgiven all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross the ordinances were separated Jew and Greek have been nailed to the cross, fulfilled, done away with. There is no longer any law, commandment, or ordinance that separates Jew or Greek, or anyone else, for that matter. I just want to note, interestingly, to something that I thought was important to recognize. Ephesians 2.11, Paul refers to circumcision without hands. and Colossians 2.11, he considers the circumcision made, excuse me, Ephesians 2.11, circumcision made with hands. Colossians 2.11, circumcision made without hands. Baptism. So now, Ephesians 2.16, Paul writes, 
and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. In his flesh, on the cross, he put to death the separation, the enmity between the two. Here, for the first time in Ephesians 2, we find this word reconcile. I mean, we've read it already, but as we get to this passage in our message, here it is. Reconciliation, in fact, is the theme of this chapter. The root Greek word, katalaso, that is translated reconcile here, is defined as to, to change or to exchange. Consider this. At the cross of Calvary, God exchanged Jesus in our place. He died on the cross in my place to pay the penalty that I deserved. He died to pay your penalty. He died to pay anyone's penalty who would come to him in obedience to faith. Imagine yourself being led to the cross to die for the sins that you've committed and that due justice, due, the due penalty was that because of your sins you should hang on the cross and the father says, no son, no daughter, it's okay, walk away. Jesus will hang on the cross for you this day. This is encapsulated in this Greek word, katalaso. The Greek word that expresses to us that Jesus was exchanged for us. With this knowledge, we must grasp that our lives ought not be simply lived effortlessly and carelessly, but we recognize the price that was paid that we might be reconciled to God. God gave His Son on the cross of Calvary in exchange for our sins. There are related words in different passages, atonement, redeemed, as well as we mentioned before, propitiation. In essence, God balanced the books, wiping out our debt, and has freed us from the penalty of our sins. With this, He has also united us in Christ, who in fact were already united in our common affliction, sin. Just as Paul asserts, which we have heard now several times this weekend, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is a wonderfully concise quote regarding the universality of sin, but it has much greater context to our discussion. And I will, for brevity's sake, just pick a few more verses from Romans 2 and 3 that demonstrate this. Romans 2.1 Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge, you contempt, condemn yourself. For, for, for who you judge, but again, for you who judge, practice the same thing. In Romans 2.11, he makes the point, and it was read by another couple of the verses that said the same thing. I think Jesus read uh, other verses that use the same phrase. For there is no partiality with God. He doesn't look at this set of people or that set of people differently. All one human race. No, no discernible distinction at the very 
core of who we are. Not multiple, but one. In Romans 3.9, you can understand he's, in this sentence, speaking to the Jewish reader. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Romans 3.9. And then, back to Romans 3.23, but starting in verse, at the very end of 22, which we don't often read, which is interesting because Jesus had read it this way, he says, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Though divided in so many ways, Jews and Greeks, or whomever we may be talking about, were already united. We are already united in the fact that we all sin. But God has reconciled us together in righteousness, in redemption, in Himself, Yahweh God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. At the cross, God made us all equal in Christ, though again, sin had already been the great equalizer. In Ephesians 4, 1-6, Paul puts a nice bow on this matter when he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, who is above all and through all and in you all. He makes a similar entreaty in Colossians 3, 12 through 17. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and, be and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, to which you were also called, I want to make that point, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing the grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Okay, so, what, what is the consistent message between these two passages we just read? Well, we'll just take a couple small pieces of each. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. With lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right? Colossians 3, 12 and 14. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul uses the bond of peace, referring to love. And in Colossians 2.14, he, he calls love the bond of perfection. Both of these passages define love by bearing with one another with humility, or lowliness, and long-suffering and gentleness, 
or tender mercies and kindness. Very synonymous words. We recall that Ephesians 2 and 14 begins, For he himself is our peace. In Colossians, Paul writes, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians 3.15 We see in this, then, the state of reconciliation. That we were all called in one body. Just as we read earlier, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. We often go to this text to demonstrate the importance of baptism, that there is one baptism, that there isn't a baptism of John that we attribute to, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that we are baptized into Jesus Christ. While true, it is important that we do not miss the actual point being made at the time of the writing for the original audience to understand that there is one baptism in Jesus Christ, not one baptism for Jews and another for Gentiles or Greeks. Jesus has reconciled Jews and Greeks together, calling them called in one body, to be one body through that same one baptism that everyone would have. I have no information to suggest that anyone was teaching a separate baptism for Jews or Greeks. I don't believe that that was... I can find no reference to that. However, Paul takes this as an opportunity to amplify the oneness of the church, fully Jew and Greek together. So now we move to Ephesians 2, 17-18. Paul refers back to peace when he says, And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, and those who were near. And we can attribute, not distance per se, but the afar off being the Greek, and those near the Jew. For... Through Him, we, have both, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Jesus spoke these words to the disciples in John 14, 27. It's recorded, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world give, do, gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In the Beatitudes, He declares, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5 and 9. Luke 24, 36, and also John 20, 19 and 21, tell us that after his resurrection, he was with his disciples, and he greeted them in part with peace be with you. While these statements are all in reference to peace, the more obvious understanding from the breadth of reading from the Gospels is that he preached the good news of the kingdom, the gospel. He did this with Gentiles and Jews alike. Ultimately, the message of peace is love. The self-sacrificing, serving action that prefers others. This is the great message to sow peace. The message of reconciliation. Christians need to love one another. 
John expresses this beautifully when he writes, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 10-11 I need you to know that when John writes this, it is many years after the letter to Ephesians was written, and he is able to write this to an audience that is not Jewish and is not Greek, but he's writing to the church. It is everybody, united, reconciled in Christ. Jesus puts the premium on what love we ought to have for one another when he writes or highlights this necessity that our love be known to the world. He declares and recorded in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Lord utters this declaration long before the book of Ephesians was written. So we have John writing long after the book of Ephesians was written, Jesus saying this long before it was written. Such a consistent message that John calls back to so many years later. Not one another who are Jewish. Not one another who are Greek. Not one another who are men or women or free or slave. Jew and Greek, brothers and sisters, rich and poor, no matter our differences, we are one in love and one in Christ reconciled. As people which God has as a people which God has reconciled to Himself by His Son and reconciled together, made one body in Christ, then we have a responsibility to sow reconciliation. I'd like to read from 2 Corinthians 5, 16-19. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-19, Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in, is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry, has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Paul begins this portion of his letter to the Corinthian brethren. With, a, with profound words that Christians of the first century needed to hear. That Christians in the 21st century need to hear. That everyone needs to hear. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not esteem a person by their gender, culture, their skin color, sex, or any other measure of the flesh. For any Christian, this is not a new revelation. In his signature speech, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that my four little children, who will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday evening, just milling around for a little bit, that that is not the pervasive idea. <clears throat> that we hear today. 
I want you to know that in a discourse on false prophets, Jesus explained that you will know them, right, false prophets, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 16 and verse 20. We just noticed in John 13, 35 that Jesus says regarding Christians, by this they'll know that you are my disciples, by love, our fruits. And so Dr. King was simply expressing a hope that all would heed Jesus' words. He wasn't creative. We wouldn't come up with a new idea that we would regard no one according to the flesh but judge a person by his deeds, his character, his fruits. Okay, so what about our ministry of reconciliation? How are a people so divided and odd reconciled to each other? Well, it is my assertion at first, it must be reconciled to God. I had this idea that I was going to draw on here a person and a person, a, a small circle, a small circle, and a big circle. And then I realized it looked look, look like a symbol from Stargate, so I thought I'd leave it off. But this person and this person who are at distinct odds, if they will reconcile themselves or be reconciled to God, they will be drawn together. This is the beginning of any true and lasting reconciliation. And we can be messengers of that reconciliation. Paul writes, now then, in the next part of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteousness, the righteousness of God, in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. And we'll remember that just a few verses before this, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is of Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's no place to reach back and find contention and division. We move forward with God in Christ. And then we note, as we've been reminded several times already, the universality of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Should we need greater, should we need greater motivation, we must read no further than Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, where Paul writes again, for when, we were without, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for those who agreed with him. Now, those are those, those who are perfected. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We must not then fail to share the gospel message 
with the world and draw lost souls to him that they might firstly be reconciled to God that these disparate humans of whatever alignment they might currently have might be reconciled together. The fact is we will not be able to heal the ills of humanity. It's too big a task. It's not a task that God has asked us to undertake. We will not, through thoughtful, secular arguments, convince nearly enough people to treat their fellow man with civility and kindness. It won't happen. It's a fool's errand. It is only when hearts are changed through Christ that we have any hope of bringing a semblance of peace to the immediate environment of the world in which we live. The only real reconciliation that lasts is between individuals who have first been reconciled to him. <clears throat> that, I contend, is biblical reconciliation. And the message is yours. <clears throat>